Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hey there, I'm Em, your podcast host, and I can't wait to get started today. So if you are new to this podcast, or even just catching up, we are in the middle of Joseph's story found near the end of the book of Genesis. Truthfully, we have covered a lot of ground since the first episode of the Open Our Bibles Together podcast in November of 2021. In almost a year and a half of me showing up every other Wednesday to study with you in your favorite podcast app, we have now almost finished the book of Genesis, with the book of Job thrown in between Genesis chapters 12 and 13. Why, you may ask? Well, I'm so glad you did. (laughs) Because part of my passion with this podcast Bible study is for us to journey through the pages of Scripture one chapter, one book at a time, while at the same time doing so in chronological order. With that in mind, yep, you heard that right. A year and a half, friends. Pretty sure that means we have quite a few of OOBT podcast episodes ahead of us as we keep moving forward, chapter by chapter and book by book, you know, until we reach the end of book 66 of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We got this right. (laughs) So now, in an effort to keep these studies moving along, let's begin with our reading of Genesis chapter 43 from the New Living Bible Translation. We're going to first read verses 1 through 18, stop for some discussion along the way, and then move on to verse 19. This chapter begins, The brothers returned to Egypt. But the famine continued to ravage the land of Canaan. When the grain they had brought from Egypt was almost gone, Jacob said to his sons, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said, The man was serious when he warned us, You won't see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you send Benjamin with us, we will go down and buy more food. But if you don't let Benjamin go, we won't go either. Remember, the man said, You won't see my face again unless your brother is with you. Why were you so cruel to me, Jacob moaned. Why did you tell him you had another brother? The man kept asking us questions about our family, they replied. He asked, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? So we answered his questions. How could we know he would say, Bring your brother down here? Judah said to his father, Send the boy with me, and we will be on our way. Otherwise, we will all die of starvation. And not only we, but you and our little ones. I personally guarantee his safety. You may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back to you. Then let me bear the blame forever. If we hadn't wasted all this time, we could have gone and returned twice by now. So their father Jacob finally said to them, If it can't be avoided, then at least do this. Pack your bags with the best products of this land. Take them down to the man as gifts. Balm, honey, gum, aromatic resin, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Also take double the money that was put back in your sacks, as it was probably someone's mistake. Then take your brother and go back to the man. May God Almighty give you mercy as you go before the man, so that he will release Simeon and let Benjamin return. But if I must lose my children, so be it. So the men packed Jacob's gifts and double the money and headed off with Benjamin. Okay, friends, I just have to jump into our reading here to have us consider the realities of what we are reading. Let's read verse 15 one more time and carefully. This time, please don't miss the order of the things taken with the brothers on their journey back to Egypt. Verse 15. So the men packed Jacob's gifts and double the money and headed off with Benjamin. Did you catch the last in the list? With Benjamin. Or as some translations read, and Benjamin also. 
This heartbreaking phrase almost appears saved until the last possible second, right? In the patriarch study, Beth Moore suggests, the with Benjamin phrase seems to hang at the end like the resigned sigh of a father trapped between the need to live and the possibility of a life with further heartbreak if he's to suffer the loss of not one, Joseph, not two, Simeon, but three sons if Benjamin does not return. You can almost hear the father's prayer. Have mercy, El Shaddai, God Almighty, have mercy. So Jacob releases his youngest son to go, to meet the demands of Egypt's second-in-command, Joseph. The deal was clear. No Benjamin, no food. Interestingly enough, Benjamin's own thoughts and reactions are not recorded in this portion of Scripture. As we consider the brothers' journey to Egypt, try to imagine the mood of the group. Do you picture them traveling in silence or talking frantically? Do you think the crisis brought them closer, making them kinder to one another? Or did it splinter them, making their tempers with each other shorter? What do you think Benjamin thought? Do you think he was glad he was finally considered one of the brothers? Or do you think his father and the circumstances surrounding Joseph's disappearance made him fear his brothers? Or did he walk in silent grief, thinking of nothing but his father's sadness? Phew, that's a lot to consider, but as I have mentioned many times before, it is important for us to consider the human realities of the stories we read in Scripture, as all of these people are so much more than chapters and characters on a page. They're real people, with real emotions, and a really hard situation. Goodness. Okay, continuing on. They finally arrived in Egypt, and they presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the manager of his household, These men will eat with me this noon. Take them inside the palace, then go slaughter an animal, and prepare a big feast. So the man did as Joseph told him and took them into Joseph's palace. The brothers were terrified when they saw that they were being taken to Joseph's house. It's because of the money someone put in our sacks last time we were here, they said. He plans to pretend that we stole it. He will then seize us, make us slaves, and take our donkeys. Now this feels like the perfect dun-dun-dun moment to stop our reading, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh my. In all seriousness, though, can you imagine how long this walk to Joseph's house must have felt for these brothers? So much pressure on them to be sure everyone gets back home to their father Jacob, especially heavy for Judah. But more on Judah in a bit. Let's start with this note from the New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible for chapter 43, verse 1, which reads, Jacob and his sons had no relief from the famine. They could not see God's overall plan of sending them to be reunited with Joseph and fed from Egypt's storehouses. If you are praying for relief from suffering and pressure, and God is not bringing it as quickly as you would like, remember that God may be leading you to special treasures. Goodness. How often do we feel we see no relief in the situations in life, and only in hindsight do we catch a glimpse of God's plan in it all? And sometimes we won't know the side of heaven, but this we can know for sure. God is always working. In the meanwhile, let me say that one more time to make sure we hear these words into the depths of our souls. God is always working. In the meanwhile. More on the meanwhile, and about suffering, later in today's episode. But for now, let's take a closer look at Judah. If you remember, we discussed his story with selling Joseph and then his situation with his daughter-in-law Tamar in episodes 35 and 36 of OOBT. If you haven't already, please be sure to listen in to those two episodes to give you the framework needed to understand the depth of what we see happening here, and truthfully the amazing character change in Judah given his offer to protect Benjamin, even if it cost him his own freedom. More thoughts on all that later, but in the meantime... The New Living Life Application Study Bible has this to say about chapter 43, verse 9. Judah accepted full responsibility for Benjamin's safety. He did not know what that might mean for him, but he was determined to do his duty. 
In the end, Judah's stirring words caused Joseph to break down with emotion and reveal himself to his brothers, as found in chapter 44, verses 18-34. through 34. Accepting responsibilities is difficult, but it builds character and confidence, earns others' respect, and motivates us to complete our work. When you have been given an assignment to complete or a responsibility to fulfill, commit yourself to seeing it through. And that Judah does. Well, with this talk of Joseph revealing himself to Judah and his brothers, how about we end the suspense right now and pick up where we left off. Chapter 43, verse 19 reads, A Feast at Joseph's Palace The brothers approached the manager of Joseph's household and spoke to him at the entrance to the palace. Sir, they said, we came to Egypt once before to buy food, but as we were returning home we stopped for the night and opened our sacks. Then we discovered that each man's money, the exact amount we paid, was in the top of his sack. Here it is. We have brought it back with us. We also have additional money to buy more food. We have no idea who put our money in our sacks. Relax, don't be afraid, the household manager told them. Your God, the God of your father, must have put this treasure back into your sacks. I know I received your payment. Then he released Simeon and brought him out to them. The manager then led the men into Joseph's palace. He gave them water to wash their feet and provided food for their donkeys. They were told that they would be eating there, so they prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon. When Joseph came home, they gave him the gifts they had brought with them. They bowed low to the ground before him. After greeting them, he asked, How is your father, the old man you spoke about? Is he still alive? Yes, they replied. Our father, your servant, is alive and well. And they bowed low again. Then Joseph looked at his brother Benjamin, the son of his own mother. Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? Joseph asked. May God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. He went into his private room where he broke down and wept. After washing his face, he came back out, keeping himself under control. Then he ordered, Bring out the food. The waiter served Joseph at his own table, and his brothers were served at a separate table. The Egyptians who ate with Joseph sat at their own table, because Egyptians despised Hebrews and refused to eat with them. Joseph told each of his brothers where to sit, and to their amazement, he seated them according to age, from oldest to youngest. And Joseph filled their plates with food from his own table, giving Benjamin five times as much as he gave the others. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Genesis chapter 44 Joseph's Silver Cup When the brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to his palace manager. Fill each of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry, and put each man's money back into his sack. Then put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack, along with the money for his grain. So the manager did as Joseph instructed. The brothers were up at dawn and were sent on their journey with their loaded donkeys. But when they had gone only a short distance and were barely out of the city, Joseph said to his palace manager, Chase after them and stop them. When you catch up with them, ask them, Why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Why have you stolen my master's silver cup, which he uses to predict the future? What a wicked thing you have done! When the palace manager caught up with the men, he spoke to them as he had been instructed. What are you talking about? The brothers responded. We are your servants and would never do such a thing. Didn't we return the money we found in our sacks? We brought it back all the way from the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If you find his cup with any one of us, let that man die. And all the rest of us, my lord, will be your slaves. That's fair, the man replied. But only the one who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go free. They all quickly took their sacks from the backs of their donkey and opened them. The palace manager searched the brothers' sacks from the oldest to the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. When the brothers saw this, they tore their clothing in despair. Then they loaded their donkeys again and returned to the city. 
Joseph was still in his palace when Judah and his brothers arrived, and they fell to the ground before him. What have you done? Joseph demanded. Don't you know that a man like me can predict the future? Judah answered, O my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. My Lord, we have all returned to be your slaves, all of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. No, Joseph said, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father in peace. Judah speaks for his brothers. Then Judah stepped forward and said, Please, my Lord, let your servant say just one word to you. Please do not be angry with me, even though you are as powerful as Pharaoh himself. Yes, my Lord, we have a father who is an old man, and his youngest son is a child of his old age. His full brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him very much. And you said to us, Bring him here, so I can see him with my own eyes. But we said to you, My Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for his father would die. But you told us, Unless your younger brother comes with you, you will never see my face again. So we returned to your servant, our father, and told him what he had said. Later, when he said, Go back and buy us more food, we replied, We can't go unless you let our youngest brother go with us. We will never get to see the man's face again unless our younger brother is with us. Then my father said to us, As you know, my wife had two sons, and one of them went away and never returned. Doubtless he was torn to pieces by some wild animal. I have never seen him since. Now if you take his brother away from me and any harm comes to him, you will send this grieving white-haired man to his grave. And now, my lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving, white-haired man to his grave. My lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of this boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. Genesis chapter 45 Joseph reveals his identity. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you! So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please, come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset, and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive, and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace, and the governor of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master over all the land of Egypt. So come down to me immediately. You can live in the region of Goshen, where you can be near me with all your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and everything you own. I will take care of you there, for there are still five years of famine ahead. Otherwise you and your household and all your animals will starve. Then Joseph added, look, you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that I really am Joseph. Go, tell my father of my honored position here in Egypt. Describe for him everything you have seen, and then bring my father here quickly. 
Weeping with joy, he embraced Benjamin, and Benjamin did the same. Then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them, and after that they began talking freely with him. Pharaoh invites Jacob to Egypt. The news soon reached Pharaoh's palace. Joseph's brothers have arrived. Pharaoh and his officials were all delighted to hear this. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers this is what you must do. Load your pack animals and hurry back to the land of Canaan. Then get your father and all of your families and return here to me. I will give you the very best land in Egypt, and you will eat from the best that the land produces. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, take wagons from the land of Egypt, and carry your little children and your wives, and bring your father here. Don't worry about your personal belongings, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So the sons of Jacob did as they were told. Joseph provided them with wagons, as Pharaoh had commanded, and he gave them supplies for their journey. And he gave each of them new clothes. But to Benjamin he gave five changes of clothes and three hundred pieces of silver. He also sent his father ten male donkeys loaded with the finest products of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other supplies he would need on his journey. Joseph sent his brothers off, and as they left, he called after them, Don't quarrel about all this along the way. And they left Egypt and returned to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. Joseph is alive, they told him, and he is the governor of all the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned at the news, and he couldn't believe it. But when they repeated to Jacob everything Joseph had told them, and when he saw the wagons Joseph had sent to carry him, their father's spirit revived. Then Jacob exclaimed, It must be true. My son Joseph is alive. I must go and see him before I die. Wow. Just wow. So much happening here as we end chapter 45. How about we just start with this perspective from Beth Moore, as found in her patriarch study, in a section titled Fears to Feasting. She begins, Joseph's brothers did not get away with what they did to him. God allowed them to get a taste of what they deserved all along, yet they ultimately got to feast on grace. The steward's response to Joseph's brothers in Genesis 43:23 was their first shock. As they frantically claimed innocence over the silver found in their pouches, he spoke peace to them. In Hebrew, it's all right is the word shalom, meaning peace. Note that the steward spoke of their God and the God of their father. I believe he knew the story of Joseph and his family well. Focus on the steward's wording. Your God has given you treasure in your sacks. A better translation may be, God must have put a treasure in your sacks. He avoids using the word kesep, money. The word he does use is more dramatic. It refers specifically to buried treasure. Beloved, I don't know what kind of circumstances this season of your life poses, but could they be worse than those Jacob's sons perceived? They could hardly experience deeper peril or greater risk, yet God's providence was in perfect play. In the midst of his unfolding plan, he'd buried treasures for them to unearth at times they'd least expected. Do you feel in deep peril, at great risk? Your God has given you treasure. Search for it. Simeon, the brother left behind, was undoubtedly one of those buried treasures unearthed before their eyes. They certainly wouldn't have expected this timing. They expected to present Benjamin to the man for his approval before a reunion with Simeon. They had no idea Joseph had already seen them and knew the youngest was in their company. This is the perfect time to talk about Simeon's incarceration. The last his brothers saw him, he was taken from them and bound before their eyes. Chapter 42, verse 24. We have no idea how much time had passed, but we can be certain Simeon was held long enough to wonder if they'd ever return. Imagine how complicated his feelings would be, knowing that Benjamin's life seemed more valuable to his father than his. Scripture records no dialogue between the brothers upon Simeon's return to them. Next, we see the sons of Jacob treated like royal guests. Suddenly the harshness of the man, Joseph, disappeared. He had no apparent reaction to the gifts. Rather, his concerns were for them and their father. Time had passed. 
Famines were especially fierce for the elderly. Joseph knew his father well enough to wonder if he'd die before allowing Benjamin to leave. Consider the tender moment as Joseph's attention suddenly shifts to Benjamin, as if he could no longer resist the pull of a magnet. After all, Benjamin alone among the others was Joseph's mother's son. The motherless sons of Jacob. No one understood them, as they understood one another so many years ago. The memories, the resemblance, the pain. The NIV describes Joseph as deeply moved, but the Hebrew indicates something more poignant. As Joseph made haste, for his mercy grew warm for his brother, and he sought where to weep. His mercy grew warm for his brother. I hope I never forget that terminology. After Joseph returned from gathering his composure, the tone changed dramatically. The peculiarities of the banquet are too rich to miss. First, because he held an Egyptian office, Joseph did not eat with his brothers. An Egyptian and a Hebrew at the same table was, in their culture, taboo. Joseph, an Egyptianized Hebrew, is simultaneously both and neither. The second peculiarity was the seating of the brothers in order of age, leaving them utterly baffled. They must have exchanged puzzled glances and unspoken questions. How did he know? Then imagine the whirling thoughts when Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. Why would he do such a thing? Do you think they wondered if Benjamin was obviously superior and not just a favored son of a shamelessly partial father? And later in discussing the silver cup in Benjamin's sack, Beth says, Some commentators suggest that to give Joseph the benefit of the doubt, we could reason he was testing his brothers, framing them to see if they would treat Benjamin the same way they treated him. Would they abandon him and run for it? Attack him? Return to their father and say he'd been tragically killed? Though the frame-up will prove as a test, I'm not sure Joseph was thinking clearly enough to plan it with such noble purpose. I suspect he scrambled to figure out a quick way to retain Benjamin without divulging his identity. That his scheme turned out to be a tremendous test of character was God's redemptive buyback, not Joseph's noble purpose. I cringe as I read that Joseph ordered the steward to frame the Hebrew men and then falsely accuse them of wickedness. Joseph certainly had reason to know how false accusation felt. Remember Potiphar's wife? Surely the steward's eyebrows were pinned to his hairline as Joseph issued his orders. Nevertheless, he obeyed them. The brothers were horrified by the accusation and made a rash oath in verse 9 that could have proved deadly. Thankfully, Joseph's intentions was not to kill Benjamin, but to keep him. Imagine the terror that shot through their souls when the silver cup was discovered in the beloved son's belongings. I hope you noted the significance of their return to the city. They would not forsake Benjamin. They would face his accuser as one, all for one and one for all. Does this sound like Jacob's sons to you? Beloved, we must pause and not miss the change creeping over this fragile band of brothers. The emerging solidarity among those splintered siblings can't be overemphasized. I'd like to suggest that from God's perspective, solidarity was the point of their 20-year ordeal. In a very short time, the entire people of Israel will move to Egypt and remain for 400 years. Though we have difficulty reasoning how their mass transit from Canaan to Egypt fit into the sovereign plan of God, we know that it did, because he prophesied it when he first cut covenant with Abram. Genesis chapter 15 verse 13 said, Your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. We know God referred to Egypt because history played out just as he said it would in the land of Pharaohs. Give careful consideration to this point. Centuries passed between the end of the patriarchal narrative and the beginning of the book of Exodus, yet the people of God retained their solidarity and identity. Look ahead to Exodus chapter 1 verse 9, where God's people are called the people of Israel. How easily they could have been swallowed up by the powerful Egyptian empire, yet they emerged as the people completely distinguishable from the nation surrounding them. 
I'd like to gently suggest that one reason they held on to their distinct identity and solidarity was oppression. Beloved, a worldly society that fully accepts God's peculiar people also invites their integration. You and I tend to think the best things for believers in Christ is to be surrounded by a friendly society. That is not necessarily true. Had Egypt remained friendly to the sons of Jacob, the tribes would likely have been absorbed into Egypt's pagan culture. Up until this point, Jacob's family had been characterized by fragmentation. The only hints we've seen towards solidarity were for wrongful purposes, Joseph's harm, for example. Yet suddenly, the brothers unite all for one. The band that would hold them together for 400 years is in a strange land, first tightened here. If the silver cup was a test, the U-turn back to Egypt was a passing grade that would mark them for centuries. At last, they clearly show themselves to be their brother's keepers. They will try to stand or fall together. The ten sons of Israel meet the moral challenge and return with Benjamin to face their judge. The face-off between Judah and Joseph is critically important. Leader to leader, nose to nose, Judah emerged as a worthy contender. Though we must not dislodge Joseph from his place of God-ordained significance, we will miss the narratives of intent if we fail to see the additional exaltation of Judah. In Genesis chapter 44, he did something far more profound than persuading a change in circumstances. He persuaded a change of heart. True healing comes no other way. And don't miss Joseph's statement in verse 17. The rest of you go. Go back to your father in peace. This suggestion was ludicrous because there would be no peace in the family if Benjamin was not returned to their father. Judah and his brothers were coming to a quick end of their games. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Verse 16. They weren't guilty of stealing the cup, but they were grievously guilty of other sins. Judah saw their crisis as guilt catching up with them. In sincerity, he pled. Flashes of the past must have raced through Judah's mind and not recognizing Joseph, he repeats the horrible events they orchestrated to get rid of him. He recalls the pain his father had suffered since he lost Joseph. Judah couldn't let this happen again, not to his younger brother. Judah concluded with the most astonishing offer of all. He pled to stay in Benjamin's place. You can hear years of pain and regret pouring from his soul as he says, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return to his brothers. Genesis chapter 44, verse 33. Time had enabled Judah to clearly see the tragic mistake of his past and prevented him from repeating it. Time made Judah more empathetic and tender-hearted. Time can heal or time can hurt. Judah chose to allow time to heal him and make him better. He chose to move past the past. Lastly, Judah's fight for his family tested Joseph's fight with his family. How often the enemy tries to distract us by tempting us to fight with the very people we were meant to fight for. Can you imagine Joseph's inner response to the question, Do you have a father or a brother? Yes, Joseph had a father and brother. Not only one brother, he had eleven. His family ties thus far have reached around only Benjamin. The partiality of Joseph stood face to face with the sudden solidarity of his brothers. The threat to one became the glue that made half-brothers whole. The band around these brothers was no longer fragile. They were not innocent, and they would take their punishment. But they would take it together. And Joseph... He could stand against them, or he could stand with them. Joseph was a man of heart. His heart had simply been wounded. His character endured, and his brothers soon learned the most powerful lessons of all at his feet. Speaking of the brothers learning lessons at their brother Joseph's feet, let's return to some thoughts from Nancy Guthrie's book, The Promised One, from our last episode of OOBT, and then move on from there. Guthrie said, 
It must have been that day when Joseph's brothers first showed up in Egypt and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground, in Genesis chapter 42, verse 6, that everything finally clicked into place for Joseph. Just as he had dreamed so many years ago, his brothers were bowing before him. God had given him the dream, and God had brought it about. His recognition of God's invisible hand at work in his circumstances, even in the cruelty of his brothers, left no room for bitterness. From this vantage point, he could see that all of his suffering— All the humiliations of slavery, all the discomforts of prison, all the years of longing for the kindness of his father and the comforts of home, God had been at work to put him in place to provide for his family when the famine came. This was not just any family that needed to be saved. This was the family from whom the promised one would come. These were the people God had called out from all the other people of the world for himself, who were destined to live in the land God had promised to them, where they would produce the son who would be the great savior. As the children of Israel read Joseph's story as he prepared to enter the promised land, they must have grown in confidence that God would continue to provide for them and guide them in his providence. Joseph knew it was the evil done to him by his brothers that had set the whole chain of events in motion and brought him where he was, evil they were responsible for. But he also knew their evil actions were in fact part of God's sovereign plan to bless his people. This enabled him to say to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Surely Jesus could have said the same thing to those who conspired against him, lied about him, beat him, and nailed him to the cross. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. You think this was all your plan, but it was God who has brought me to this place, so that I can accomplish a great and good purpose, so that I can give life to all those who come to me. This was the theme of Joseph's life, the climax of his story. And this was the theme of Jesus' life, the climax of his story. And I have to ask you, is this resounding truth and confidence anywhere in your story? Is it anywhere in your perspective about the circumstances that have shaped your life? What in your life would change everything about your life if you were to write across it, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good? The man who touched you and took your innocence and dignity from you, he meant evil against you. Are you open to considering that God wants to use it for something good? That coworker maligned you or that boss who refused to advance you. She meant evil against you. Can you begin to believe that God has intended all along to use it for good? The organization that used you and then forgot you. The spouse who betrayed you. The sibling who stole from you. In their selfishness, they meant evil against you. But are you ready to see what God wants you to see from Joseph's life and from Jesus' death, which is that God intends to use it for good in your life and in the lives of others? What circumstances in your life have you seen as a tragedy or injustice that took you off the course of blessing God had in mind for your life? Can you see that nothing and no one, not even you, can derail God's plan for your life? Can you see that God did not abandon you, but that he has been there all along with you in the pit, planning to use it to accomplish something good in your life? It is this truth about God's sovereignty over every aspect of my life that has made all the difference in the lowest places of life. Most of us may be willing to say that God allows suffering into our lives, but we are certain that he would never initiate it, send it, or be in any way behind it. We know that God does not do evil, so it is hard for us to grasp that he could any way be involved with anything in this world that brings us pain. That just doesn't seem right. Certainly it is true that God allows suffering. We see that over and over in Scripture. And so while it is not inaccurate to say that God allows evil and suffering, it is inadequate and perhaps misleading to limit God's defining involvement in suffering to this word suggesting that he only passively, and we hope perhaps reluctantly, 
gives permission for pain to invade a believer's life. We need only read the psalmist's commentary on Joseph's story to have some serious holes poked into our God-only-allows argument. In Psalm 105, verses 16-19, through 19, it reads, When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. As we take scripture at face value, we see that God did not merely allow the famine, he summoned it. He did not merely allow Joseph's brothers to sell him as a slave. He sent him to Egypt. Joseph was put to the test of suffering by God's decree. God ordained all the circumstances that brought Joseph so much pain. Obviously, Joseph understood this. Joseph did not say, you meant evil against me, but God used it for good, as if God runs along behind circumstances outside of his control, coming up with ways to make something good out of the mess after the fact. God is no passive observer who finally becomes involved only after disaster strikes, saying optimistically, I'm sure I can figure out how to turn this into something good. He has a purpose and design in what is happening to us from the beginning, and even though what is happening to us might not be good, God intends it all for our ultimate good. When I found the truth that God is sovereign over the suffering in my life and intends to use it for good, not only hard to understand, but difficult to believe and difficult to swallow, what has helped me most is to look at the one Joseph was always meant to point us to, our Savior Jesus Christ. Only when I turn my gaze to the cross of Christ can I begin to believe that God really can use something desperately evil and painful for incredible good. When we look at the cross, we see the most innocent victim, the most immense suffering, the greatest injustice, the most hurtful betrayal, the greatest physical and emotional agony. Surely putting the pure Son of God on the cross was the greatest evil of all time. But was it not also the greatest good ever accomplished? Because of the cross, guilty sinners like you and me don't get what we deserve, punishment. Instead, we get what we don't deserve, the mercy and forgiveness of God. When we look at the cross, it fills us with confidence that God is sovereign over everything, including evil and suffering. And if He can intend the evil and suffering of the cross of Christ for such amazing good, we can begin to believe that He can and will use what is evil and may seem senseless in our lives for good. Joseph could look back over his life and see that God intended to use his suffering to put him in place to save his family when the famine came. But the truth is, we may not be as fortunate as Joseph to be able to look back at our suffering and point to the clear purpose God had in it. We may never see in this life exactly how God is using our loss for good. But just because we can't see or articulate clearly His purpose in our suffering doesn't mean He doesn't have one. The question is not about whether God will use the suffering in your life for good. The question has been settled in the life of Joseph and far more in the life and death of Jesus. Paul wrote of this as a settled issue when he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The question is, do you know this? Has this issue been settled deep in your soul? Is the reality of God's sovereign providence shaping your perspective about the painful places in your life? I don't know how God is going to use what you've experienced for good, but I know He will. Your suffering will one day give way to great glory. This is the God-given dream that Joseph held on to in the dark. This is the joy set before Christ that enabled him to endure the cross. This, too, is your sure and certain hope that can enable you to endure whatever your future may hold. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of what is to be revealed to us. Continuing on in a section titled, How Genesis Points to What is Yet to Come When His Glory is Revealed. It reads, 
What kept Joseph going all those years as a slave in a foreign country and as a prisoner in a foreign jail? It was the dream that God had given to him about the future and his confidence that it would come to pass. God had given him a vision of the future in which he was exalted, and that strengthened Joseph to face the present in which he was suffering. The same is true for Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. What strengthened Jesus for the suffering and humiliation of the cross was his confidence in the glory to come. How can we, like Joseph and like Jesus, endure the suffering inherent in living in this broken world? It is as we fix our gaze on the glory that is to come that we are strengthened to endure the suffering we face today. Our confidence in the glory ahead of us and our valuing the glory ahead for us shape our perspective about our current struggles. Paul tells us how in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16-18. through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When we read Paul describe his troubles as light and momentary, we wonder if he really knew what it was like to suffer. But the truth is that Paul's suffering included being imprisoned, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, robbed, hungry, thirsty, cold, and naked, none of which we would describe as insignificant or brief. For Paul, it was a matter of comparison and perspective. Paul saw the suffering of this life through the lens of eternity in light of the glory to come. Paul saw a set of balanced scales. On one side of the scales is the suffering of this life, the temporary pains and short-term losses. On the other side of the scales is the glory we will experience in heaven, the satisfying joy of being with Jesus the overflowing inheritance of our eternal reward, the radiant newness of our glorified bodies, and the unending pleasure of living in the presence of God with no shame, no sorrow, and no suffering. When Paul said his trials were light, he didn't mean they were easy or painless. He meant that compared with what was coming, they were small and insignificant. All our hard times are like feathers on one side of the scales compared to the weight of glory ahead for us. Joseph was confident that his suffering was purposeful and the promise of glory was sure. So was Jesus, and so can we be confident that there is a purpose and a promise for all who are willing to share in the suffering of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. We suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Just as the sufferings of Joseph were purposeful in the plan of God, which was to put Him in the place of a, to be the Savior of the world in His time, and just as the sufferings of Christ were purposeful to make Him the great Savior for all the world for all time, So we can rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And also in Romans 5, verse 2, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What will enable you to suffer patiently and purposefully is your confidence in what is to come, your sure hope that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. First Peter chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Oh, friends, just to clarify why I'm even sharing right now in today's episode, this portion of the Promised One book that specifically references the to come, verse 20, as found in Genesis chapter 50, we should note that the theme of Joseph's story is found in his words. In Genesis chapter 45, verse 8, it is not you who sent me here, but God, as well as in Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Let's be sure we take notice and even sit up to listen more closely when we hear two words spoken in both of these verses, but God. With God, there's always a meanwhile. Lisa Turker said this to say about the idea of a meanwhile with God in a Forgiving What You Can't Forget book, study, and Facebook posts even. She said, We tend to get very attached to outcomes of our own making. Meanwhile, God loves us enough to be working on a better plan. That's why I want to encourage you to take heart. You may be facing a hard reality, but never forget what our good God is doing in the unseen is also reality. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. He walked through years of rejection, false accusation, wrongful imprisonment, and seemingly was forgotten. But with God, there is always a meanwhile. God was bringing about something only he could do with the circumstances before Joseph. He was positioning Joseph and preparing him to be used to help save the lives of millions of people during a famine that would have otherwise destroyed multiple nations. God is always doing something. Sometimes, unlike in the story of Joseph, we don't get to see this side of eternity how God was working in our most painful circumstances. But I can let the way God worked in Joseph's story to be a reminder of his faithfulness in my story. And friend, I believe you can too. Keep trusting him. He sees you. He loves you. And he knows exactly what needs to happen in every detail of your story. Let's just remind ourselves one more time. With God, there is always a meanwhile. We do not serve a do-nothing God. God's hand of faithfulness and goodness was there even when Joseph couldn't understand it. The same is true for us. We don't see what's going on in the spirit realm. We don't know the whole story. God does. His plans are for our good. What He allows in our life, even those things that are so terribly devastating, have good reasons. The meanwhile might feel so punishing to us, but God is shaping us and honing us for something we cannot even imagine. He can use anything and everything for our good. It doesn't mean that everything happens to us is good, but He can and will use it for good. Trust Him in the meanwhile. But God, meanwhile, so, so good, friends. And did you catch how Guthrie referenced a few verses from Psalm 105 in the Promised One book? That intrigued me, so I decided to take a closer look at it. In my studies, I discovered Psalm 105 is a call to worship for God's people to give Him thanks and praise in response to His wonders, as referenced in 105 verse 5. Most of this psalm highlights God's special work with the Israelites, beginning with the covenant with Abraham, continuing with Joseph's story, and then focusing on the exodus from Egypt and the movement to the promised land. It reads, Give thanks to the Lord and proclaim His greatness. Let the whole world know what He has done. Sing to Him, yes, sing His praises. Tell everyone about His wonderful deeds. Exult in His holy name. Rejoice, you who worship the Lord. Search for the Lord and for His strength. Continually seek Him. Remember the wonders He has performed, His miracles, and the rulings He has given, you children of His servant Abraham, you descendants of Jacob, His chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His justice is seen throughout the land. He always stands by His covenant, the commitment He made to a thousand generations. This is the covenant He made with Abraham and the oath He swore to Isaac. He confirmed it to Jacob as a decree and to the people of Israel as a never-ending covenant. I will give you the land of Canaan as your special possession. He said this when they were few in number, a tiny group of strangers in Canaan. They wandered from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another. Yet he did not let anyone oppress them. He warned kings on their behalf, Do not touch my chosen people, and do not hurt my prophets. He called for a famine on the land of Canaan, cutting off its food supply. Then he sent someone to Egypt ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. 
they bruised his feet with fetters and placed his neck in an iron collar. Until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. Then Pharaoh sent for him and set him free, and the ruler of the nation opened his prison door. Joseph was put in charge of all the king's household. He became ruler over all the king's possessions. He could instruct the king's aides as he pleased and teach the king's advisors. Then Israel arrived in Egypt. Jacob lived as a foreigner in the land of Ham. And the Lord multiplied the people of Israel until they became too mighty for their enemies. Then he turned the Egyptians against the Israelites, and they plotted against the Lord's servants. But the Lord sent his son Moses, along with Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed miraculous signs among the Egyptians and wonders in the land of Ham. The Lord blanketed Egypt in darkness, for they had defied his commands to let his people go. He turned their water into blood, poisoning all their fish. The frogs overran the land and even invaded the king's bedrooms. When the Lord spoke, flies descended on the Egyptians, and gnats swarmed across Egypt. He sent them hail instead of rain, and lightning flashed over the land. He ruined their grapevines and fig trees, and shattered all the trees. He spoke, and hordes of locusts came, young locusts beyond number. They ate up everything green in the land, destroying all the crops in their fields. Then he killed the oldest son in each Egyptian home, the pride and joy of each family. The Lord brought his people out of Egypt, loaded with silver and gold, and not one among the tribes of Israel even stumbled. Egypt was glad when they were gone, for they feared them greatly. The Lord spread a cloud above them as a covering and gave them a great fire to light the darkness. They asked for meat, and he sent them quail. He satisfied their hunger with manna, bread from heaven. He split open a rock, and water gushed out to form a river through the dry wasteland. For he remembered his sacred promise to his servant Abraham. So he brought his people out of Egypt with joy, his chosen ones with rejoicing. He gave his people the lands of pagan nations, and they harvested crops that others had planted. All this happened so they would follow his decrees and obey his instructions. Praise the Lord. Oh gosh, so many reminders of God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel. Promise keeper, way maker, miracle worker, as he is to each one of us today as well. Our God. Amazing. Just amazing. Okay, my tears. as we move into our time of prayer, I must confess that I've had part of the lyrics of two worship songs swirling in my head as we finish our study time today. One is Gratitude by Brandon Lake. This one kept coming to mind as we were reading Psalm 105. Thankfulness plus praise. And the second is Though You Slay Me by Shane and Shane. Suffering plus praise. Two seasons of the heart bent toward worship. In gratitude and in suffering. Don't miss this, friends, because often in our lives we find ourselves living in the tension of both. As Joseph did. As Jesus did. Even as we do, should we choose to do so in worship. Oh, goodness. Well, with that thought in mind, I'm going to use portions of the lyrics of both of these songs to be the prayer of our hearts and minds as we close out today's episode of OOBT. Please join me in prayer together. Father God, all my words fall short. I've got nothing new. How could I express all my gratitude? I could sing these songs as I often do, but every song must end, and you never do. So I throw up my hands and praise you again and again, because all I have is a hallelujah, hallelujah. And I know it's not much, but I've got nothing else fit for a king, except for a heart singing hallelujah, hallelujah. I've got one response. I've got just one move. With my arms stretched wide, I will worship you. So I come, God, I come. I return to the Lord, the one who's broken, the one who's torn me apart. You struck me down to bind me up. You say you do it all in love that I might know you in your suffering. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, 
I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship, sing a song to the one who's all I need. My heart and flesh may fail, the earth below give way, but with my eyes, with my eyes I'll see the Lord lifted high on that day. Behold the lamb that was slain, and I'll know every tear was worth it all. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Beautiful. Just beautiful to be reminded of the importance of our praise to our Heavenly Father, no matter the situations we face in life. Because if there is one thing that Joseph's story seems to be showing us on repeat, is that God is always up to something in the meanwhile moments of our lives. I could go on and on as God seems to be bringing this point to my attention over and over in my studies in a million different ways. But suffice it to say that there will be more meanwhile talk in the coming episodes of OOBT as well. So if this podcast has helped you in any way, would you please let me know by rating and writing a review? It means the world to me. Also, please be sure to subscribe so you know when the next episode releases because it comes straight to you in whatever podcast app you use. I'll upload and you'll download. Easy peasy, right? <laughs> this is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.